uh, which is Catherine and my six kids. They were all set to come this morning. Uh, they were here at Emmanuel when you all first started in early October, and they feel an incredible, actually, connection with you all. They also love any chance they can to get into the city. But uh, my oldest son broke his arm in a soccer match yesterday, and so uh, mom... Uh, overruled and said, we're going to, just getting to resurrection where I passed is going to be enough of a challenge this morning. So, sorry, uh, Catherine would love to be here, and she will be here again, and, uh, and the kids, but we do stuff together, and I'm just sorry that we couldn't do something together this morning. But anyway, so, I'm here. Yay, I'm so glad to be here. Um, I know that many of you don't know me, but you have to just trust me when I begin by saying how much I love you. You just have to trust me. But I'm utterly sincere. I love you. I love this church. I love the Lord has gathered you. I don't know you all. But when I was asked at the very beginning of becoming a bishop, what does a bishop do? And then I had to go and really uh, read a lot and pray a lot to give an answer to that question. I came up with a very easy a sort of acronym for me to remember, I said, well, there's a lot that I don't do, but I do do a few things. And I've kind of used that to let people know what is it that I do. And I use F and I use E, and then because I couldn't get the W to work, I use a U. It's kind of preacher cheating, but it works for me to remember. So my first job is to be a father. And that's why I say that I, I love you. I love this church like one of my children. And I love you all gifts of God that the Lord has brought to this place. Many of you from different backgrounds, different traditions, a faith tradition, not a faith tradition, whatever it might be. That's the job of a bishop is first and foremost to be a spiritual father to my priests, my deacons, and to the churches that the Lord is giving us. A second, I'm an evangelist. By that simply means I am dedicated to constantly and consistently, and I hope creatively, sharing the good news, which is what evangel really means. I'm a good news sharer. I have to come and tell you about Jesus. See, it's because I love you that then I get to come and tell you about Jesus. And wherever I go, wherever I am, whether I'm wearing all this gear or not, I'm looking for a chance to tell whoever might listen about Jesus Christ. Now, finally, my job as a bishop is to be a unifier. And Father Aaron uh, said it among many eloquent things. He just said that I sort of carry uh, the entire diocese, which is simply like a really big regional church, uh, with me. And my job is to connect you all with the work that's going on in Wisconsin or the work that's going on in Minnesota. Our area is Chicago, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and works all around there. So it's my job to be in unity with all of that, but it's also my job to be in unity with all those who have gone before us. All the men and women who have been faithful for centuries to Jesus Christ. And to be in unity with those who God has chosen to come after us. It's a spherical unity that a bishop is called to. I also uh, pastor Church of the Resurrection, so I'm a bishop, but I'm also a senior pastor. Resurrection's out in Wheaton, Illinois. And we've been uh, out in that area doing ministry. Uh, we celebrate our 60th uh, year of ministry. Um, I've been there since 1988. So I've uh, been there since I was a college student and have had many years there and uh, still love uh, being based there. But I do love getting a chance to 
uh, on many Sundays travel around and be in different family members. So I told Rez last week, I'm going to see a sister. Um, I'm going to see one of your relatives, and I can't wait to come back and tell you about it. Uh, for you and Emmanuel, you may feel like, oh man, I mean, we're just getting started, and you know, we're still learning a ton, and sometimes it feels a little shaky. Uh, but just so you're aware, there are a lot of new churches and new church planters that will be starting in the next year to two years, and they're looking up to you. So like the big sister that gets a, a new baby and still feels like she's pretty young, let me just tell you, you're older than many that are coming. And there are many that will be looking up to you, asking you for counsel, seeking your stories of faith and hope and what God can do. So you keep growing, and I know you're developing, but at the same time, I need to tell you right away, you're already an older sister, and I need you to be ready for those to come visit and take Father Aaron's time every once in a while to learn from him and Laura what they have learned. Uh, you're already ahead of many in this diocese where we are planting church upon church upon church. So thank you for taking the risk. Thank you for having the courage because others are already depending on you. Big sister. And that's just part of being one of the older ones, even though you don't feel older. All right. Let me uh, jump into our text. If you have a bulletin there, we're going to work from the uh, text of Isaiah. But let me introduce and kind of set up this, this text from Isaiah before we uh, jump in and take a very close look at it. <coughs> I had a chance 20 years ago to meet a man I had wanted to meet for a long time. I wanted to meet him. More than that, though, I just wanted to actually see him. And while I had a very brief introduction to this gentleman, it was more that I wanted to see what he would be like. I wanted to hear him speak. I wanted to see how he acted. I had read a book by him in my college days. It was an arresting book. It's one of the most smallest and yet sort of most profound books I've ever read. It was called Night. And the author, the man I wanted to see, was Elie Wiesel. And Elie Wiesel was a European man, a Jewish man, who was one of the few to survive the Holocaust of World War II. And he wrote this Nobel Prize winning book, Night, and chronicled what it was like as a child to go through one of the horrors of the 20th century. Wiesel walked out of the extermination camps bodily intact. But he walked out without the faith that he had walked into the camps with. He had gone in a faithful young Jewish man and he said, in those camps, where the flames were so present, my faith was engulfed by those flames. He had had a spiritual doubt that he did not want. How could we not understandably empathize? A spiritual doubt he did not want take away a, a faith that had been so real to him. When I saw him, so many years later, on the North Shore of Chicago, speaking in a synagogue. He was still one who bore the marks of the loss of faith. He bore the weight of spiritual doubt. He, he kind of carried that doubt with him as a, as a clear burden. What do you say to someone who has known profound spiritual doubt? 
What do you say to yourself? If you carry spiritual doubt, what could somebody else say to you? Yes, Elie Wiesel's situation is unique. It's epic. Not many have experienced the suffering that a man like that experienced. But millions upon millions, millions upon millions of Christian believers have experienced and do experience and will experience in the future a doubt they do not want. A spiritual doubt that visits them and gnaws at them and kind of often lives outside of maybe the center of where they're thinking but is always sort of haunting and always sort of pressing in and creating a great lack of confidence in Jesus or a lack of joy in the fullness of what life could be. What do we say? What do we do with our spiritual doubt? I think it's a really important question. Now we're given the gift of what one man said to Elie Wiesel's spiritual doubt. This man was older than Wiesel. He befriended him, became like a father figure to Wiesel. He was also a European Jew. He had not gone to the camps, but he had converted to Christianity. His name was Francois Moriac. And Wiesel created, got such a bond with Moriac that he actually asked Moriac to write the introduction to his book, Night, A Christian. And this introduction to Night, we have a chance to hear somebody respond to the profound doubts of someone like Wiesel. We have the opportunity to see somebody interact with authenticity, clarity of thinking, conviction of faith, kindness to say, here's what I would want to say to Elie Wiesel. Moriac says, what could I say to him? What could I say to him who I, Moriac, believe that God is good and Wiesel no longer does? What could I say to the one, could I say to him, if the Almighty is the Almighty, then he will have the last word on every life? If the Almighty is the Almighty, then he is truly and absolutely good? He said, when I saw him face to face, he writes this introduction, let me be honest with you, I could say none of these things. All I could do was walk over to this young man, embrace him, and weep. But Moriac, being very clever, did of course say all those things to Wiesel because he wrote them in the introduction to the book that he had written. Smart. So what can we say to those that we love who have doubts they do not want? Well, what does the Bible say? What does the cross of Jesus Christ say to our doubts? Let me make a clear uh, qualifier, a necessary clarity when we are trying to work with the difficult and complex issue of doubt. Christian theology has recognized for centuries that there's really two kinds of doubt. <coughs> there's involuntary doubt and there's voluntary doubt. What I want to speak to primarily this morning is involuntary doubt, a doubt we do not choose. But there's also voluntary doubt. And the way that voluntary doubt is understood is that voluntary doubt may start as involuntary doubt. It's not a doubt that we want. But rather than resisting that doubt, rather than trying to work through that doubt, Rather than wrestling with that doubt, it becomes a kind of acquiescence. It becomes a kind of giving in to that doubt. As a matter of fact, it almost becomes an ennobling of the doubt. 
that doubt becomes a familiar friend. That doubt becomes actually a kind of sort of added edge to our intellectual superiority. That doubt sort of morphs from doubt into a skepticism, and that skepticism develops into a cynicism, and that cynicism might go whole head, full-blown, into a kind of just flat-out unbelief. But it's held, it's, it's actually honored, it's, it's even sometimes put up in front of others. Now that's a doubt that can truly become what the Bible talks about as the sin of unbelief. It's embraced rather than resisted. Just in short, the way out of that doubt is the repentance of sin. I'm not speaking of involuntary doubt. I'm speaking of a developed cynicism. You can get out of that doubt. I speak as one who knows. That takes repentance. That takes confession. But what are the doubt we do not want? Let's look at that together. What we'll find is that the, the only way to truly and fully address the doubt that we do not want, or the doubt that someone else does not want, is not ultimately just the right answer to the question that torments someone. For many of us who have doubts, there's a question that animates that doubt. There's maybe two or three or several questions that animate that doubt. And sometimes we think, oh, if I could just get an answer to my questions, be they sort of intellectual questions or be they a heart question, if I could just get the right answer or just, just read the right book or just have the right conversation, then maybe I could be totally released from this. And what we'll find is in the teaching of the scriptures and the ministry of the cross, the response to our doubt greater than any specific answer, as helpful as that might be, is the healing of our souls. That what our doubt is really asking is not ultimately an answer, but a healing. It may need an answer along the way, but it's ultimately a spiritual transformation of heart and mind and body that is needed in the addressing of doubt, even more than particular replies to particular queries. How is it that we deal with our doubt? Let's first look at the, kind of the anatomy of what we do when we have our doubts that we do not want. First is that we often try to use the process of division when we work with our doubts. Here's what I mean. We deal with our doubts by trying to divide our spiritual life, our spiritual doubts from the rest of our life. We try to kind of create a division in our lives. Many Americans live this way. So many Americans still want to have still some level of spiritual connection. I think this is actually still true cross-generationally. We want some level of true spiritual connection. But we treat our spiritual lives because we do have doubts about our spiritual lives, and about spiritual questions, and about God, and the nature of God, and the reality of evil, or whatever it might be, we kind of divide our lives out, and we kind of keep our spiritual lives over here. It's a small part of our life, but we're not ready to be atheists, many of us, some of us, yes, but not many of us, so we just kind of put it over here, and it's kind of like an infirm grandparent, like a sickly grandfather, and we visit our doubt once a week for an hour to an hour and 15 minutes, but we drink a lot of coffee to even make that work, right? <laughs> And we've we, we got to kind of keep our grandparent over here sort of coddled and separated from the challenges and the urgencies of this world. They can't handle real life or, or reality, but we still want to honor them and we're, we're there for an hour and we do our deal and then we go back to the real life the other how many hours of the week. And then we'll be back there next week. See you again in a week, granddad. 
sorry you're so unhelpful and anemic and weak, but I'm dutiful. And we divide the rest of our lives and simply visit that small area, that doubted area, when we have to. Underneath this desire to divide our lives, to live a separated life, is a sort of assumption that God is not truly near. We can divide our lives and keep them separate because God is not close. The spiritual life can go over here. God should be honored, we reason, but God is not near. God is not integrated. God is not essential part of every hour of every day. And let me say that Christianity, throughout her history, has often helped to contribute to that confusion and that fallacy that God is not near. By creating a sense of sort of religious work over here, religious people over here, and then the rest of life all the time. By highlighting people like bishops who wear unusual clothes and saying they are sort of you know, unusual and different and over here, and then the vast majority of us live all the rest of our lives. God is not near. God is not integrated. God is not a part of what we do. I learned a long time ago, I used to think, oh, I shouldn't wear a collar like when I'm traveling or whatever because I don't want to look like I'm trying to be too religious. That was actually a confusion. I found that when I wore a collar and I'm traveling, for example, and I'm flying or in an airport, People are so glad, they're actually, I symbolize religion for them. And I kind of come into their everyday lives. And I'm buying, you know, a, a, a kind bar at the Starbucks counter. Or I'm doing business about my ticket. And all of a sudden, they, they'll often say to me, it's so nice of you to be here. Or thank you for coming. And I forget I have my collar on. I'm thinking, what an absolutely nice Chicagoan. <laughs> but they actually want to know that God is near, I learned. Because we divide our lives with the assumption that he is not. And it's one of the things that often fuels our doubt. Another way we deal with our doubt, it's not division, it's a kind of deletion. We delete the things about the Christian faith that we find very difficult to swallow. We find very difficult to accept. So we want to still remain Christians. We want to still remain religious or spiritual. But there are just some things that have been accepted by the church for centuries, taught as realities for hundreds and hundreds of years, that we, when we face them, say, oh, but I can't accept them. I, I can't get there, but I, if I can't, but I want to be there, but I can't get there. So I'll just delete that part. I'll just take it out. And then I can maybe deal with the tensions I feel and my doubts. This is exactly how I dealt with my profound spiritual doubts, which I had for many, many years. And I still am visited by doubt that I do not want. I still struggle with it. But for me, it really came around a particular teaching that I read again and again in the Bible that I knew the church had taught. It was a teaching that there is a place at the end of one's life where they do not know Jesus and embrace Jesus. It's called hell. I hated this teaching. I couldn't accept that there would be people who would be, as the Bible teaches, eternally separated from the living God. I couldn't understand that. How could a God be loving and do anything like that? I couldn't get my head around it. I couldn't accept it. I wanted to reject it. And so just like the Bible I saw in the Smithsonian Institute two summers ago, like our third president, Thomas Jefferson, who took literally a razor to the very thin pages of his Bible and ever so carefully just cut out every section that didn't 
according to Jefferson, line up with the God that Jefferson wanted, I did the same. Not literally, but actually. I would be a Christian, but I would not hold to doctrines that I could not handle. I would be a Christian, but I would be the one to say essentially, this is not in accordance with the God that I want to follow. This is not in accordance with the God that I want to trust. This is not in accordance with the God that I understand. And what I found is that there was a growing sense of an I in the middle of my relationship with God, and I was beginning to determine what should be deleted and what should be kept in. And this often comes out of a sincere desire in us to remain in the faith to remain some kind of Christian in some way. It comes from a desire, but it comes from a plague and from a doubt as well. And so we choose, be it a doctrine, be it a lifestyle choice, be it a sexuality choice, be it an intellectual understanding. We say, I will be a Christian, but I will not live by this. And we ever so carefully cut that out of the teachings of Scripture and the way in which the church has understood those teachings for centuries. There's a third way. There's a third way besides dividing, besides deleting, and that's that we just practice denial. We don't want to be doubters. Maybe we were raised to be good kids or good Christians or whatever it might be, and yet we have these doubts being visited upon us and we're in this incredible tension because we don't want these doubts and we want to be good Christians. And so we, we just deny that we're in doubt. We, we just want to admit to anyone that we're in doubt. We have doubts. We have serious doubts. But we never talk about it. We never engage it. And what begins to happen in our lives is the joy that we once knew just begins to diminish and diminish and diminish. No one knows why. We're not telling anybody why. But the fact of the matter is we're actually in a really challenged place. But we're just trying to push it away. We're trying to believe that it isn't true. I just... I just had a most remarkable conversation about three weeks ago with an incredibly mature Christian. But they're being at, he's absolutely plagued by doubt right now. If you knew him and I told you who he was and you were in the community that he's in, you would be stunned. Because you would look up to him. You want your sons to grow up to be like him. But he said to me in the secrecy and the privacy of his own room, that with anguish, he said, I just, he suffered. He has suffered unlike many that I have known. And he said, after years of suffering, I just, I want to believe. It's not that I don't want to remain true, but I just don't know. I, I just don't know. Where, how is God good in this situation? How is God near in this situation? If we're tempted to deny our doubts, the question beneath that is not, is God near, which is the question if we're tempted to divide. I don't think I mentioned this. The question that often animates our deleting is the question, is God good and totally and absolutely good, or must we manage the goodness of God? 
The third question, if you're tempted to deny your doubt, is this God really understanding? Is God truly merciful? Does He know what I'm like, what I deal with, what I think of, what I struggle with? Let's look at what the cross says to these questions. We're looking at Isaiah, and this is a remarkable book, you guys. Um, it's written by a poet. He was really kind of he was poetic. Uh, he was a very uh, gifted governmental leader, had a lot of unusual leadership, organizational leadership gifts. And what he's doing is he's talking about something, which is the crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth, but he's talking about it hundreds of years before it will actually happen. So he is speaking here in Isaiah 53 about the cross. It's called the Song of the Suffering Servant to describe the suffering of Jesus, the Son of God, hundreds of years before it will actually happen. He is prophesying, is what it would be called. He's speaking from a present place into a future reality about the eternal reality of who God is. And he begins to say, this is what God is like. This is what will happen on the cross of Jesus Christ when he suffers on that day. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's one of the first things he says about who this Jesus will be on the cross. He will bear our griefs. He will carry our sorrows. I've got six children, as I mentioned. And for years and years and years, we always leave every resurrection event where I pastor last. We always do. I don't know why. We still do. It's always late at night, and we're putting all the kids in the car, and we drive them home, and inevitably the baby, and we've had so many of those babies along the way, or one of the younger children falls asleep. And it's always been my job to climb into the van, get them out of their car seat. At that point, it's absolute kind of sleep dead weight. You kind of get them around the straps, and I set them on my chest, and I carry them down the sidewalk, and I carry them upstairs. And their heart's next to my heart. They're conformed completely to me. I'm just bearing them. And I set them safe in their bed. And that's what Jesus does with sinful man and sinful woman. We're strapped in, we're asleep in our sin, not even conscious of the incredible need that we have. But he's so near. He bears us. Like a dad bearing a sleeping child. What does the cross say to our temptation to divide our life, spiritual life, from another life? It says, oh, oh no, Jesus bears you in every hour and every minute of every day entirely through your life. He bears your sin. He takes your sorrow and your infirmity upon himself. The absolute lie, the absolute lie that is to be carefully and consistently refuted is that God is distant, whether it be your sensory experience or not. 
employed and engaged your mind and your will as you're listening to me now and understand that it is the teaching of the eternal word of God that God is near. He is not distant. He is not separated. He is not a part of one part of our lives and not a part of most parts of our lives, but he has fully and absolutely integrated himself in every single way. He is without sin, yet he has taken our sin upon him. And that is gospel. That is absolutely and stunning good news. I know you may not feel it. I understand that. I know the experience of the distance of God. I don't understand that. But I can tell you, based on what's been given us in God's teaching, God is always near. He's always bearing us with Him. Don't, 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 don't separate your life. Don't have a life over here where it's the spiritual life and then as the separation develops more and more, it becomes kind of a hidden life and, and then there's compulsions and and actions and thoughts that you live, that you, you're, you're trying to keep separated from your other life and basically start living two different lives and they're just getting more and more and more divided and you've got this fantasy life and this mental life and this action life that is way out of whack with what your other life looks like because behind that is the constant sense that God is not near. And I'm so happy that I can tell you that that isn't true. Look at verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And by his wounds, or with his stripes, meaning the, the stripes that were set on his back by a whipping prior to the actual crucifixion, we are healed. See, I thought when I was working through this whole question around the doctrine of hell, would I be a universalist, which is one who believes that any and all are saved without relationship to Jesus Christ, or would I accept the doctrine of hell? I, I worked that through, and I kept thinking, well, you know, if I think about this long enough and read enough books and talk to enough people, I'll eventually come to day where I decide. I'll be sitting in Starbucks, and I'll go, well, here I am. Here, here. I, that's how I thought it would resolve. I'll just I'll figure it out. That isn't at all how it happened. It was far more humbling than that. I thought I'd be in a position of control, a position of influence, and I would kind of decide, well, <laughs> you know, I'm going here, I'm going there. I kind, of stand, I kind of saw myself kind of standing up, you know, and sort of this route or this route. Hmm, which one will I choose? Here's how it happened. It happened because I became such a broken person. And my life was so divided. And I deleted so many things out of the teachings of Christianity. There was hardly even Christianity even more. And I had enough intellectual integrity to know that and that reality. And I knew that my hidden compulsions and my anxieties and the challenges of my life and who I wanted to become, but who I seemed absolutely able to, uh, unable to become, came to such a head that I finally didn't stand strong looking one way or the other, but I threw myself on the ground. And I literally came to Church of the Resurrection where I'm now the pastor I came there, I sat in the very back row, I sat there with a hangover from the night before, I was absolutely broken. And I finally said, I, I can't do it, I can't, I can't handle all the doubts, I can't figure it out, I don't know which one's the right way, I don't know which one to delete from the scriptures and which one to keep any longer. The very burden of my own self, kind of autonomous kingship, had finally taken me down. 
And I literally crawled up the prayer ministers. I'd be on my knees at times. I was such a broken place. And I just said, I, there's so much I don't know. But if you can in any way help me by praying for me or reintroducing me to Jesus Christ, I will take it now. Now, I worked through to the answers on that question. And I chose to submit myself to the teachings of Scripture and the realities of how the church has taught that for centuries. But before I could do that, I needed to know that not only was God near, but that He was good. That He was good in my life. That He was good to touch my anxieties. He was good to take that hidden place of my life. He was good to relieve me of, of my sin. He was good to heal me. I needed a healing. My doubt, my involuntary doubt, needed a healing from the very wounds of Christ himself. You know what I found and what I thought as I discovered that and what has served me for so many years since then is that as disappointments came and I was dealing with many disappointments in my life at that point, many things that I'd hoped would happen that hadn't happened, that because God is near and God is good, he transforms profound disappointments. He transforms profound pain. He transforms them into doorways. And he opens them up as opportunities to walk in and through them to meet him there. When I had doubt, I felt so isolated. I, I felt so by myself. But as God met me at the cross and bore me and healed me, I actually discovered that what I thought was a barrier was a doorway. And I could walk through it. And some of you are very alone. Even though you're surrounded by people right now. And you think your disappointments and you think your doubts will keep you from knowing the fullness of God Himself. But they're actually doorways. But because he's near and he's good, he'd like to transform and pull you through them and to him. Finally, finally we read that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Verse 6 of Isaiah 53. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's be clear. God knows that we've gone astray. God is profoundly merciful in understanding. He knows the wayward heart. There's nothing that has ever flickered across the American imagination or the human imagination that has yet to shock God. There's no doubt you've carried or articulated no sinful action that you have done that has yet to shock God. Grieve God? Yes. Sadden God? Yes. Shock Him? No. He's merciful. He knows your frame. He knows your doubts. You need not deny them to deal with them. But instead, as this brave man did with me, bring them to a person that can be trusted. Bring them out into the light and share them that you might continue to believe and have those who do believe walk with you in that season of doubt. I'll never forget that moment in our marriage. We'd argued, Catherine and me, several years into our marriage. We'd had the argument many, many times before. 
I got angry, inordinately angry, as I had many, many times before. But Catherine, rather than escalating it, as she had many times before, had a response to me. It stopped everything, and she said, I know you're angry right now, but I don't know you're not really angry at me. I know you're angry about other things in your life, and they come out of me. I know you're agitated right now. And I know what it comes from, Stuart, in your life. It's okay, she said. It's okay. I, I know you. Brothers and sisters, how glad I am to be able to tell you with the full authority of God's word that God is near, God is good, and God is merciful. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'd like to just pray for us briefly, and then we're going to transition, I think, into a time of, of praying for the, 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 the church and all of that. Yes. So, Father, if you would join me, um, can we just pray together briefly and uh, take some time? Uh, I just did a lot of talking. And I'd like to give you a little bit of time uh, to just... Um